long, long time ago, the Jewish rabbis made a request, a very strange request. At the annual celebration of the Passover, they were telling people, when you finish with that meal, that Passover meal, and all the rich tradition that is involved in that special moment, take some time to read the Song of Solomon. Uh, let's make this a part of our annual practice, too. Let's let this become a part of the celebration as well. Uh, before you walk away, with all that's involved in the Passover, before you walk away from that, take some time to read the Song of Solomon. Well, that kind of took everybody by surprise. W why are the rabbis making this request? I mean, what has the Song of Solomon got to do with the Passover, with this Passover meal, this Passover celebration? I mean, you know, the Song of Solomon, it's the one book in the Bible that kind of makes us blush because it is the passionate tale, the kind of love and intimacy that God wants two people to, to experience in the marriage relationship. And trust me, this book is not written like an instruction manual. It's bold, it's blunt. I mean, in the Song of Solomon, you find the personal memoirs of two lovers as they share all the private joys and ecstasies that they, they experience in, in their married life. I mean, they don't hold anything back as they share their feelings with each other. It's vivid, it's detailed, it's graphic. In fact, if you were reading this in the original Hebrew, you would notice at the very first word in the book, the very first word in the Song of Solomon is the word kiss. It's just a book full of emotion. It starts off in a red-hot way, and it just kind of takes off from there. Well, what does this book of romance got to do with the Passover feast? I mean, this wasn't a part of the original instructions. I don't remember God saying anything about this back there in the book of Exodus. So why, many years later, would the rabbis come along and want to add this new element to the ceremony? Well, I can think of two reasons why. Number one, I think after years and years, after centuries and centuries of observing the Passover, some of the rabbis were concerned that people were now just going through the motions. And they didn't want this special moment, the Passover, to lose its grip, its power on the hearts of the people. They didn't want the, the Passover to become this mindless ritual where, okay, we've been through this a million times before, and people just walk through the ceremony without there being anything moving or memorable about that event. So by adding this new element, asking people to take time to read the Song of Solomon, the rabbis were saying, don't ever lose the sense of wonder, the sense of joy at what God has done for us. Don't ever fail to be amazed. I mean, just overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude when you stop to think about how God came to our rescue. But I think there was a second and even a more important reason why the rabbis were encouraging this. Read, read the Song of Solomon. Because I think they were trying to remind, remind all the Jewish people, you know, the Exodus had a point to it. God wasn't just getting his people out of a bind. I mean, there's more to the story than that. Yeah, he delivered them from evil. Yes, he rescued them from that awful, horrible bondage. Yes, God was setting them free from something awful. But he wasn't just setting them free from something. He was also setting them free for something new and better. God led his people out of Egypt so that he could bring them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, in this very intimate, very moving, very, very dramatic setting, now God and his chosen people could enter into a richer, deeper, and much more rewarding life with one another. You see, the Exodus wasn't just about a rescue, it was also about a relationship. And by encouraging people to read the Song of Solomon at the conclusion of the Passover meal, now the entire nation of Israel will be reminded, you know what? We were not just called out of bondage. We were also called into a new life with God. We have been called to know him in a very personal way. We have been invited to live on 
intimate terms with the Lord. Well, I think as Christians, we need that reminder too. Our salvation isn't just a rescue. Yes, we have been forgiven. Yes, we have been set free from our sin. Our past is not going to be held against us anymore. And that is so wonderful. Now, because of Jesus, we will not be condemned for all the rotten and all the evil things that we have said and done. And that's amazing. And we should never, ever take that for granted. But that's only one aspect of our salvation. In being saved, we've also been called into a covenant, a new life with God, a joyous an abundant life with the Lord. Our salvation is not just about a rescue. It's also about a relationship. And yet many times I don't think we appreciate that like we should. And the reason why we don't appreciate it is because I think today we tend to approach relationships in a much different way than people did in Bible times. Here's what I mean. Today the pattern we generally follow is this. You fall in love and then you get married. But in Bible times, many times, you get married first and then you learn how to love one another. I mean, for centuries, the Jewish people would point to one particular verse to help emphasize this. You, you enter into a covenant, you get married, now you've got this new life, this new connection, so now let's build and develop our love for one another. Let's make this love something deep and strong. I mean, now that we've got this relationship, let's work hard every day to make this relationship something really, really special. And the verse that the Jewish people would always point to to help teach this concept was Genesis chapter 24, and verse 67, notice what it says. And Isaac brought her, he brought Rebekah. And Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother, Sarah. It's there inside the tent that the wedding ceremony takes place. And once the ceremony's finished, now they're married. And he, Isaac, married Rebekah. So now she becomes his wife, he becomes her husband. Now that they're husband and wife, and he loved her. He now learns how to love her, and she learns how to love him. Love after the marriage, not before. See, what makes this moment so astounding to us is that this is the first time that Isaac and Rebecca have ever met. This is the very first time they've ever seen each other. And the first time they meet is the day of their wedding. Man, as Americans, that's, that's hard for us to grasp. How do you marry somebody you've never met before? Love after the marriage, not love before the marriage? That doesn't make sense. I mean, personally, honestly, I am so glad that's not the way it went for me. I, I look back on that period of time when I was dating the one who is now my wife, Martha, that was one of the most fun, one of the most exciting periods of my entire life. In fact, because of what we experienced in the dating process, it made the day of the wedding so special for me. Because I knew Martha, because I trusted her, because I loved her. When we got to the wedding, I was eager to enter into this lifetime covenant with her. So I, I wouldn't change that for anything. I am all for love before marriage. But I think the Bible's teaching something important here that we need to get a hold of. That the love that comes after the marriage, that love should be something richer, sweeter, and so much more meaningful than any of the love we experienced before the marriage. The love that comes after the marriage should be something so much better. But it's not going to be better if you think it's just going to happen automatically. It doesn't. You know, it's like planting a seed in the ground. Okay, you got the seed in the ground, but you don't walk away. It's got to be cultivated and grown. It needs sunshine and rain. Without that inside, outside input, the seed's not going to grow. So it is in a marriage. Both people, if they're not investing and working hard, both people, if they're not pouring their soul and energy into this relationship constantly, the love for each other's not going to grow. A man in the Middle East put it like this. He said, you Americans, you mock us. You ridicule us because our marriages are arranged. 
you, you think we're so backward and so unsophisticated. But I think you're the ones that have it backward. He says, here in the Middle East, we approach marriage like this. We, it's like taking cold soup and putting it on a hot fire so that slowly over time, the soup becomes warm. But you Americans, in the way you approach marriage, you take hot soup and put it in a cold plate and then slowly, over time, let the soup get cold. Do you hear what he's saying? Here in the West, here in America, we put all the emphasis on what happens before the marriage, the dating process, working hard to make a good impression on each other. But then once we got married, well, now we just kind of put it on cruise control. Well, at least now we're hitched, and here, from here on out, it's like it's all automatic. And because we do not continue to invest in the relationship, the love for one another begins to fade and get cold. But over there in the Middle East, they, they approach it entirely differently. It's once you get married, now the hard work begins. Now you begin to take everything seriously. You take your devotion to each other to a whole new level so that over time the fire grows and the love for one another becomes warmer and, and your commitment to one another and your appreciation for each other becomes so much more mature. In other words, in a marriage, what two people are doing, they're digging a well. And you want to dig that well so deep so that now the water that comes up from that well is so much more refreshing than anything you've tasted before. Well, that's a picture of the Christian life, too. Isn't it true? We work hard to get people to Jesus. But we work so hard to get people to Jesus, once we get them to Jesus, then we kind of abandon them. And we don't invest any time teaching them now how to spend time with Jesus. Okay, you're saved. You got your ticket to heaven. You got a free ride to glory. You got it made from here. So relax. You can just kind of coast the rest of the way. Like salvation is simply a rescue. No. It's just like the Exodus in the Old Testament. God not only brought us out of that sinful lifestyle, He set us free from that so that He could now lead us into something new and so much better. So now we could enjoy life with the greatest, most glorious person who's ever lived. So now, from this moment on, we could spend all of eternity sharing and enjoying the company of the happiest person in the whole universe, Jesus. And he wants to share that happiness with us. But we're not going to experience that divine joy if we're not investing in that relationship with him and allowing Jesus the opportunity to invest in us. Now, that's the framework, the context for what we're going to read and learn here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So take a look at this with me. Here we have a church at Ephesus. They remember the rescue, but they've forgotten about the relationship. They remember about the forgiveness, the freedom we have in Christ, but they've forgotten about this friendship that we're supposed to enjoy with the Lord, this friendship we're supposed to develop with the Lord. So with that background, let's see if we can better appreciate the words that are written here. It says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, The Spirit clearly says the Holy Spirit. He is speaking right now through the words written by the Apostle Paul. And today he's telling us, he says that in latter times, in the last days, some will abandon the faith. They're going to turn and walk away from the Lord. Why? Because they're no longer paying attention to the Lord. They're no longer following after him. They've chosen to pay attention to something else. They are now following after deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. See, maintaining a healthy relationship with the Lord is not easy. Why? Because there's going to be opposition. There's going to be tension. There's going to be struggle. There is a devil, and he is actively at work to every day try to wreck and ruin our life with God. We need to be aware of that. Isn't it interesting that one of the places where the devil brought Jesus so that he could tempt him and lead him astray, I mean, he did this intentionally. One of the places he intentionally brought Jesus so he could bring about this result, he brought him to the temple. The temple? <laughs> Isn't the temple supposed to be the house of God? 
Isn't the temple supposed to be the place where you find people praying and singing and worshiping the Lord? Isn't the temple supposed to be the one place where you're supposed to be safe from the devil? Yet it's here at the temple that Satan is putting Jesus to the test. In fact, on this day, he quotes scripture so he can lead him astray. And isn't it true? You think about this, Bible students. Isn't it true on more than one occasion Jesus had to chase the devil out of the house of God? So don't be surprised if in your sacred moments when you're trying to read the Bible or you're trying to pray, don't be surprised if Satan shows up and puts you to the test. If he isn't working hard to try to distract you, to try to take that holy moment and turn it into a chaotic moment so he can get your mind off of the Lord. Or don't be surprised if sometimes Satan uses a preacher or people who claim to be Christian artists, writers, singers, and the books they write and the songs they sing and the lyrics to those songs or the words that you hear in a sermon. If sometimes Satan doesn't use that to distort the truth, God's word. Do you remember Peter? One of Jesus' very best friends. I mean, here's a good man with a good heart. Really loves Jesus. And yet one day, he hears Jesus saying how he's going to be handed over and betrayed and he's going to be crucified on the cross. And boy, he gets up, he gets riled up right away. He says, no, Lord, we're not going to let that happen. And you remember how Jesus responded to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. Not get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Here's a, a dedicated, devoted disciple of Jesus. But at that moment, he's serving Satan, not the Lord. I mean, Peter's, Peter means well. He, he loves Jesus more than anybody else. And yet at that particular moment, he's trying to steer Jesus in the wrong direction. He's trying to pull him away from God's will for his life. Don't be surprised. Satan will attack. And he will attack you in surprising ways. That's why maintaining this healthy relationship with God. Listen, this is a battle. You've got to fight and fight hard to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. In fact, Paul will emphasize this all the way through chapter 4. You get down to verse 4 and he says, train yourself. See, it doesn't happen by accident. It's got to be intentional. Train yourself to be godly. And the word that he uses for train literally means to sweat. It's the Greek word for gymnasium. Or you get down to verse 10 and the apostle Paul writes, and we labor and we strive. We're not just kind of coasting through things. No, we labor and we strive. And the word that he uses for strive literally means to agonize. You've got to work hard if you want to enjoy a vibrant relationship with the Lord. So verse 2, such teachings, these false teachings, they are so deceptive. I mean, it's so easy for any of us to get tricked and fooled. And why? Because they come through hypocritical liars, people who are really good actors. Man, I... They seem like Christian folk, or they seem to have such good hearts. Oh, but that's why you've got to so carefully examine. I mean, really check out the substance of what's being said, or what's being said and shared there, because then you begin to realize their sense of discernment is off. And why is it off? Because this teaching comes through consciences that have been seared as with a hot iron. So verse 3, he gives us, here's a couple of examples of the false teachings that were going around in Timothy's day. They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. See, same thing happening here that happened way back in the, in the Garden of Eden. Here's Satan coming along trying to get Adam and Eve to believe something about God that's not true. Why can't you eat from that tree? He lets you eat from all the other trees. Is he holding out on you guys? Maybe he's kind of stingy and mean. Good God being, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And he creates this sense of suspicion so he can create a rift in their relationship. Doesn't he do the same thing today? You think about all those lies. He feeds our minds on a daily basis. I'm all alone. 
I'm going to have to handle this all by myself. No, no, you're not. Oh, no, I'm all alone. But I have to handle this all by myself. Or nobody would ever love me. I mean, if you knew the truth about nobody would ever want to love somebody like that, that's not true. Or it's all over. I've crossed the line. I've gone too far this time. I'll never be able to recover from this. I'll never lose weight. I'll never get out of debt. I'm never going to have any friends. Oh, it's not so. Or everybody's against me. No, they're not. No, no, yeah. Everybody's against me. Lie after lie after lie. Why? He's trying to pull you away from God. How do you fight that? How do you resist this? How do you keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus and enjoy a really rich and healthy relationship with him? Well, he gives one of the strategies for that in verses 4 and 5. In fact, you work your way through the rest of the chapter, he just gives one piece of strategy after another. I'll let you check that out for yourself, but we'll take a look at just one of them. Verses 4 and 5. Here's one of the ways to maintain that connection with the Lord. It says, for everything created, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Don't misunderstand, saying a prayer before your meal is not going to make the food more holy. But taking the time to say grace, to recognize this moment, this meal, this is a gift from the Lord. Taking time to do that, you build a bond with the Lord. And that's so important. I mean, think about the background here. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's the one who is writing this, and he's a Jewish person. And back in the first century world for Jewish people, when you sat down at the table to enjoy milk, that was something special. Because you realized when you were sitting down at that table, you weren't just there to feed your body. You were also there to feed your soul. You were not just there to benefit from the work of other people's hands, the people who worked hard to raise those crops, the people who worked hard to prepare that meal. Man, today I'm going to be blessed physically because of their hard work. I want to pause and give thanks for this. But you weren't just there to benefit from their work. You were also there to benefit from their words. As your family and friends sat around the table while you were eating the food, you're carrying on this conversation. And they're the ones who help you to process what you've been through that day. Man, did I have a tough experience this morning. Can I tell you about it? Oh, yeah, go ahead, David. Tell us your story. And you begin to tell the story, and everybody around the table can tell how you're just really beating yourself up. So finally a good friend speaks up and says, You know, David, I, I think you're being too hard on yourself. I, I don't think... You did so wrong. or You know, it might change a few things, but not. you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Really? And you see your friends and your family help you to filter things, to put a little different perspective. Wow, now that I hear you talk, I've never thought about it. Looking at it from this angle, you know what? That really helps. And because the Jewish people wanted God to be a guest at that table too, that meant with every meal they would pray. And they would not only pray, they'd read scripture. Now, that's not always they'd open up the scrolls because scrolls were hard to come by. Super, super expensive. So most people didn't have it. But what they do, they quote scripture. Hey, you remember the, the scripture that was read to us just this last Sabbath there at the synagogue? Let me quote that again. And they do that so that God is a part of this conversation too. So that God has an influence on everything that's shared there at the dinner table. And then the Jewish people will take it one step further. In the Babylonian Talmud, one of the rabbis writes, he said, it is forbidden for any person to enjoy anything without a benediction. What he means is, don't just say grace before a meal. Learn to say grace. Learn to give thanks for every joy God provides. You hear a beautiful song and you think, wow, that was so inspiring. You read this great book and you think, man, that was so enlightening. You witness this awesome sunset and you're thinking, words cannot describe the beauty that I'm witnessing right now. Or your little child. 
just freely, voluntarily. They weren't coerced in any way. They just one day just come running up and give you a great big hug. And you think, man, does that make me feel special? Or taking a swim or taking a hike in the woods or discovering all this extra change sitting there in the middle of your car. So now you can pull into Dairy Queen and purchase a peanut buster parfait. Wow, what a delight. Does not the Bible say in the book of James, everything wonderful, everything delightful, it's a gift from above. That didn't happen by accident. It was God who supplied it. God gave me that joy. So when you read a verse like this, you've got to ask yourself, anytime you sit down for a meal, are you going to eat that food like an atheist or are you going to eat and enjoy that food like a Christian? You're going to eat and enjoy all this wonderful food, never even think about God or as you're eating that meal, do you see an opportunity to praise the Lord? You know what? God, you're the reason I got this smile on my face. You're the one who made this tasty meal possible for me. Thank you. Listen, <laughs> I know it's hard to worship God when you're eating peas. But who would not be moved to worship if you have a chance to eat a piece of strawberry pie? Right? In other words, what we're saying here is even the simple things like eating a meal... Even there is a moment to draw near to the Lord and to give God an opportunity to draw near to you. Here's an opportunity to really bond with your Creator. So don't take those simple things, those simple moments for granted. Now, in light of what we read in verse 1, I want to close this way. We, we've been rescued, and we've been rescued, so now we can enter into a relationship with God. But you need to keep in mind there's going to be all kinds of opposition, all kinds of forces working to try to pull us out of that relationship. So think of it like this. Down in Huntsville, Texas, every day more than 100 prisoners are released onto the streets. Because down in Texas, they do things a little bit differently. In Texas, they have 58 prisons that house more than 130,000 inmates. And any time for any of the prisoners, when they have served their time, they finished their sentence, they're all released in the same way. They're all released from this one spot, the state headquarters for the prison system, the Huntsville. And any time any of those prisoners step out from behind those red brick walls, they're given three items. Number one, a, a, a new outfit. Cheap clothes, but a new outfit. Secondly, they're given a $50 check. And thirdly, they're given a voucher, a state voucher that's good for one bus ticket so they can get out of town. So most of the time what happens, the prisoner steps out and he goes to the nearby store and cashes the check so he's got some money on hand. And then he'll walk three blocks there in Huntsville. He'll walk three blocks down to the local Greyhound bus station to use that voucher we can leave. At that moment, you think about their situation. Is this person now free? Yes. Has this person now been given a new lease on life? Absolutely. But what most of those former prisoners fail to realize, the journey ahead is so perilous. You see, anytime they get to that bus station, there's a crowd waiting for them, a crowd of prostitutes and a crowd of drug dealers, people who know about their previous way of life, and they want to play on that past so they can get them into trouble again. Is that not a picture of the Christian life? We become a Christian. We are brought out of a prison of sin. We are given a new identity in Jesus. Free? Yes, we are free. Set free from all our sin and the guilt that goes along with it. Do, have we been given a new lease on life? Without a doubt, we have. But what so many of us are so naive about are the challenges that now lie before us. There's, there's a crowd of troublemakers out there, the devil and the forces of darkness that know all about our past and the ways of our past. And they're looking for every opportunity they can to trip us up again. So how do we get out of town? 
How do we step into that new life that God wants to offer to us and really enjoy that new life? You can't get through that crowd alone. Paul will bring this out in a really interesting way. This wasn't the only letter that he wrote to Timothy. A couple of years later, in fact, it's the very last letter he writes because he's coming to the end of his life. He's about to finish the end of the race. And he writes this letter to Timothy. And in chapter 4, he says something that to me is kind of surprising. Because here's the great apostle Paul. And I'm thinking after all these years of living with Jesus, man, he surely got this down pat. He's got this all figured out. So knowing that he's towards the end, well, I'll just coast from here. But he doesn't. He writes to Timothy. You can sense the urgency. You can feel the emotion as you're reading this. He writes to Timothy and says, man, the enemy has really turned up the heat. I'm not sure I've ever gone through anything so hard before. Here at the end, he's going through the hardest experience of his life. And he says, what makes it so hard is so many of my friends have left me. I mean, I thought they were friends, supposed friends, and a lot of them just, they, man, I'm not going through that. And, and off they went. He says, I got Luke here with me, but that's not enough. He says, Timothy, you got to come. I know what you're doing there in Ephesus is important, but just drop everything. Get here as soon as you can. And Timothy, when you get here, would you bring Mark along too? Right now, I need some good people around me. I'm under attack, and I can't make it without your See, here's Paul. He needs a team of caring Christians, people that will pray with him, people that will pray for him, people that will just spend time with him because otherwise he won't make it safely through that trial. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul, he couldn't function without that team. Neither can you. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought them out as a nation. When God brought them to the Mount Sinai so he could enter into a covenant with them, he entered into a covenant with a community, a nation. When, God, when Jesus calls Peter, drop your nets and follow me, it wasn't just Peter that got that call. Eleven other guys did too. Together as a group, twelve men, they learned how to spend time with Jesus. Should that not be our experience too? When I become a Christian, it's not just Jesus and me. It's supposed to be Jesus and we. I am called to be a part of a church too. And together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I learn how to enjoy that friendship with Jesus. Salvation is not just about a rescue. It's also about a relationship. We're not just here to celebrate our forgiveness. We're here to celebrate a friendship. But to stay true to that friendship, I need to constantly be surrounded by some committed Christians who will help me to maintain that commitment. Let's pray.